Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'd just like to read an uh, email that I sent on... Uh Friday the 23rd of June 2000 at 9 o'clock in the morning. You're about to hear from Neil Griffith, a survivor of the Childers fire. As he just said, this email was sent home to family and friends in the UK about nine hours after the palace was lit. Nine hours after he thought he was going to die. We arrived in Childers, Queensland, to do some veggie picking on Sunday night. Last night, the Palace Backpackers Hostel, which we were staying in, burned down with the suspected 15 travellers missing. It is believed to be arson. After a 12-hour day picking courgettes and a beer, I went to bed around 10.30, waking at approximately 12.30, busting for the toilet. After going to the toilet, I saw a fire in a bin in the lounge putting some of the flames out with a cushion then calling to a guy on the internet, the only person up. He, being wide awake, grabbed the bin and took it outside. Believing the fire to be out, I went to bed, shattered. Approximately an hour later, I woke with banging and shouting. The light to the dorm came on, thick black smoke was pouring into the room from the window above the door. Then the lights went out with no smoke alarms going off or sprinklers and no illuminated fire exits. I tried to picture the exit to the veranda, crawling on the floor with my mouth full of choking smoke. People were bumping into me from both directions. I started shouting and banging on the door, but the smoke was too much. I was about to give up when someone grabbed me, pulling me down a corridor outside onto the veranda. I was the last one out. I've never feared for my life so much. My lungs are full of smoke, believed to be so bad due to the lead-painted walls. The first fire brigade arrived minutes later. A volunteer crew as children are so small. They got us down with the ladder and started trying to fight the blaze which had now engulfed the top floor, blowing windows out and children's main electricity. It took three crews a good hour to control the blaze. It's now 9.22am. I've given a police statement and learned from the detective that fires had been started and we had put one out downstairs. What sick individual did this is still unknown. The town have been amazing, giving us a centre to stay in, food, drink, clothing, etc., even free internet. Unfortunately, I've lost my phone, so will not be contactable. I'm safe and well, so is Andy, whose turn it was to sleep in the camper van. Thank God he didn't go in after me. It's not possible to grieve his loved ones and family of those missings will do. Including the 15 missing are two guys from our room and a Welsh girl who came to the beach with us on Sunday. I don't know where from here, but I will now try to sleep. Love, Neil. 
For the first time, Neil is opening up like never before. Not like this, anyway. There was a short period of time after the fire that Neil would pop up in the media telling bits and pieces of his story. But they weren't always accurate, and with what he saw that night before the palace went up in flames, he made a conscious decision to withdraw from the narrative. It's only now, since this podcast has gone live, that Neil has felt compelled to open up again. What he's been through will break your heart. He's a funny guy who can find the best of most situations. Incredibly, really, given what he's been through. It's not fair. It's exposure to magnified trauma at the highest level. But it can't be changed or fixed. Just dealt with. This is Neil's story in his words. So I started my travels in uh, October 1999. I went travelling with a good friend, um, Nigel. We'd met at uni and uh, we'd basically finished university and then had about a year at work each and uh, rang each other up and kind of said, how's how's working? And we were both like, "Uh, should we go (laughs) travelling? It was like, yeah, okay. We'll uh, get a work visa for Australia and uh, head off and um, work over there. Funds were tight. This was going to be the true definition of a budget trip abroad. But the boys set off in late 1999, taking on Southeast Asia en route to Australia. So we uh, set off through Thailand, just just travelling really, backpacking, um, headed up the the highest uh, mountain in Thailand on mopeds. That was a good laugh, good experience. Apart from it was pitch black when we needed to come back down and uh, it was pouring with rain and we only had flip-flops and shorts on. Thailand suited them perfectly. It's cheap to exist. And it was easy to drift around neighbouring islands. For a couple of young men who'd walked out on an English winter, they were living the dream. And it was about to get a whole lot better as they made some new acquaintances. As we made our way down through Thailand to the islands, we met uh, a couple of girls there, uh, Nikki and Nikki, and uh, travelled with those guys for a little while. Neil had taken a particular liking to one of the Nikki's, Nikki Sheen. And then, with absence making the heart grow fonder, Nigel had an epiphany of his own. And he was on the on the phone for about an hour and a half. And I was, uh, who are you bringing? Are you all right? And uh, he got off the phone and he said, I think she's the one. And I said, uh, who have you rang? And he said, uh, well, I didn't tell you the full story, but um, while I was managing the bar in Glasgow, an Australian that was overdoing her overseas experience in, uh, in the UK, he, uh, yeah, decided to uh, get together and uh, I think he knew that he was going to be married. So... We were about a month into our trip and uh, he was <laughs> he was already um, going to be settled by the time we got to Australia. Her name was Ebony. She met up with the boys in Bali and the full entourage headed to Australia together. Low on cash, they slept on the floor of a friend's apartment in Sydney's beachy eastern suburbs. And Neil hit the streets looking for work. And uh, managed to find an interview for a... Um, office furniture removal job. So I thought I was just going to be moving furniture around and I, I stepped into the 
the office and uh, it was an ex-UK copper and he said um he said have you got a driving license I said yeah yeah and uh, showed him my driving license he said you can drive a seven and a half ton truck I said can I I've never driven anything more than a, a sort of van and he said yeah, yeah get in the truck with Roscoe he'll take you out so I think Roscoe put triple J like I think that's what it was called the, the heavy metal on the on the radio and uh off we trekked round uh, round Sydney in this truck. I could hardly hear the gears changing, crunching, and uh, nearly took out the corners of the street, um, you know. But I I got used to it and uh, got back. And he he told uh, he told the the cop the ex cop that I was a bloody idiot, but um, I could have the job. So next I was managing sort of seven trucks and thirty backpackers moving uh, office furniture back and forth across across Sydney. By this time, Nicky has moved into a share house where fellow British backpacker Andy Lowe is living. Neil eventually sets up home in a Victorian terrace house in one of Sydney's more affluent suburbs with eight other people. We all sort of, you know, shared rooms and uh, we had like mattresses on the floor at first and then as uh, myself and another lad, uh, Jez, were working in the... Um, office furniture removal we kind of picked up bits and pieces here and there and people had kind of filing cabinets for wardrobes and <laughs> sort of a big um, boardroom table for all nine of us to get round in the in the open plan kitchen diner with uh, sort of swizzle chairs and <laughs> and then whatever anyone else could get hold of uh, a couple of girls posed as professionals um, to uh, to get hold of the property so God knows what they thought when we eventually handed it back. I think we had a marble, marble boardroom table. Things are going well. It's a relatively carefree way of life. Everything they wanted when they decided to throw in their jobs back home. So by February 2000, with a few dollars in his pocket for the first time in a while, Neil splurged out on a diving trip for Nikki for her birthday. She earned her dive qualifications a few months earlier while she was in Thailand. It was a group of 10 on a hot 35 degree day on Sydney's world famous Bondi Beach. But it went horribly wrong. She went diving and uh, unfortunately um, didn't come back from diving. Um, She drowned. It's tough for Neil to talk about, understandably so. Instead, he's found an email he sent following a memorial service for Nikki a week after her death. Thank you all. This week has been a blur of people, emotions, water and love. You're all good friends and I will now value your friendship even more. I'm going to carry on out here for a while at least. We had a beautiful memorial service yesterday and I stood and spoke. I cannot tell you what I said, but it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I then played one of her favourite songs, The Look of Love. We then went and placed flowers out to sea off Ben Buckler Point. Family had been magnificent and her sisters were as wonderful as she was. Thank you all. With love, Neil. And, you know, I'd, I'd known Nikki for for several months um, and she was at the time living with, with Nikki and and my friend uh, 
Andrew Lowe and and some other friends, Lowy, and so yeah, it was uh, heartbreaking for all of us. And um, you know, Ebony and Nigel knew her well, and her family came across, and uh, her dad he said, "Don't let this ruin your life. Um, keep doing what you're doing. Keep travelling." And I don't know, that's that's what I did. So yeah, it took some time to uh, to get over that. He withdrew from the world somewhat, poured his time into work, occupying his mind with positive thoughts and the prospect of setting off on the travel adventure he'd flown more than 16,000 kilometres to do. One of the guys from work, uh, he sort of said he had this camper van. Well, it wasn't a camper van at the time, it was because he was an ex-electrician and he'd done a a little van up um, with sort of cupboards and drawers and bits and bats. And uh, he said he'd sell it to me for, I think, $200. But it didn't have a red Joe, so I had to get it through all that. And then uh, fit it out with a mattress and and uh, surfboard, obviously, and uh, some bits and pieces. And uh, I was going to go travelling with, uh, with Lowy up the coast. So after three more months of working and saving, Neil and Andy head north in their newly fitted out van. As we discuss the time of year, Neil finds a diary note which marks the moment. Oh, here we go. This is 15th of May. A day later than planned, but Andy needed his sleep and we needed curtains and a cooker. So we got a good deal trading a bike helmet and a camera in. (laughs) As they crossed the Sydney Harbour Bridge, they christened the van with lemonade and named her Carly in honour of Neil's youngest cousin. It needed a new exhaust along the way, and by the second night they were using a stapler to make curtains to block the morning light, which must have done the trick given the bizarre wake-up call the next day. We'd parked up, like just you know, we used to just camp anywhere then, and uh, there was some, a load of trucks with cats, like I think um, the show written on the side of the truck, and we just tucked the van in amongst those. Got my head down, I was, I was like, put my earplugs in, because uh, Andy snores like a chainsaw through barbed wire. And um, sort so of, uh, yeah, settled in. And uh, woke up, it, must, it was really late. It was, at, you know, it was about nine o'clock. I could hear a peg being banged in, and I thought, well, what's going on there? We're at campsite. And uh, opened up the side of the, side of the van, and literally this humongous great, you know, tent had gone up for cats and we were literally sat in a van right outside the front entrance and all, all the people were like, oh, they finally woke up. <laughs> they got up and Andy must have slept through the lot of it and I had slept through the lot of it. So uh, that was a, a funny, funny uh, moment. They carried on and headed across the border, stopped to work on a farm in Stanthorpe, famous for being the coldest place in Queensland. They say it's cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey. And while they were there, they met a couple of new friends. We were picking corianders together and it was freezing. I'll never forget how cold it was. Kate and Lauren Morris. Childers and the work opportunities on offer came up in conversation and with the prospect of warmer weather further north, they packed up and chased the sun. 
I remember the boys meeting us there a few days later and it was great to see them again and hang out and um, have some fun times with them. The van made it to Childers, but Neil and Andy made a quick business decision on arrival. They'd book into the palace, that at least got them on the work rosters, but they'd found a parking spot out the back, so one of them would sleep in the van. They figured it was a better night's sleep in the van, and Andy's snoring wasn't exactly a welcome soundtrack in the palace. So they arrived on Sunday, picked zucchinis for four days, on the same farm as Lauren, Sarah Marnie, and Welsh girl, Sarah Williams. Now remember, she was due to go home the next day for her brother's wedding, so there was a farewell drink arranged at the pub across the road. You know, I had, had about four pots, something like that. Came back to the hostel. I made a phone call to a friend in Sydney and sort of hanging outside for a while and then went to bed um, about 10.30, something like that. You might also recall in previous episodes, we've heard Lauren talk about what happened next. And on my way back up, I'd run into Neil. So we just didn't even say words. It was just like, ha-ha, pointed at each other. You had to go to the toilet too. <laughs> and then headed back to bed. And I woke up needing to uh, go to loo, basically. So I hadn't been asleep that long. I was up in room six um, upstairs. So I had to come all the way downstairs, long corridor. I bumped into Lauren, you know, grunted, oh, poked her in the belly or something, and then uh, went to the loo. And probably it was only 10 or 15 minutes later that um, I could feel the building shaking and glass smashing. It was what happened in those 10 to 15 minutes that would draw Neil into the police investigation for the next couple of years. As I was coming back, to my right, there was like the TV lounge room and uh, I saw the bin on fire and it had sort of paper towels in it and around it and a sort of cushion on top. And I grabbed the cushion and sort of started smacking the bin. I, I don't know, it was sort of like fanning the flames almost. So I thought, what, what am I doing? Um, and I sort of stepped back. Look, looked around, couldn't see, you know, an extinguisher or anything, couldn't see something. I looked, at, I remember looking up as well, thinking, that oh, smoke alarm's not going off, but... And then uh, I remembered seeing this this chap under the stairs, at like a little email terminal booth, you know, you had these little computers then, uh, just one that you could do your emails, and he, and he was, I remember seeing him there, and I shouted, oi, oi! There's a fire here. And he, he got up and, and just walk, walked over, you know, obviously wide awake, and um, came in and, and just picked the bin up. And, you know, he was obviously fully with it um, and just walked the bin down the corridor um, and out the back door. That man was Robert Long. It's the same bin that public prosecutor David Meredith talked about in episode 16. His colleague, Brendan Campbell, had spotted it during a site visit the day after the fire. The rubbish bin was there and it was melted. It was clear. And Brendan saw this and said, hey, 
I know it's not connected to the fire, but I think you better secure this. It didn't appear at the time to be relevant, but because it was a burn, uh, what was this fire doing so far away from the seat of the fire? Because that part didn't burn. And I, you know, I, I just thought he's he's dealt he, you know, he's dealt with it. He's he's on it. Um, and I went back to bed, and I, I don't know why to this day I, you know, I didn't wait or I didn't pause to see him come back in I, or not. I, I just sort of thought, oh, he's, you know, I, I, I guess it's just human instinct. I just trusted that someone to do that. So Neil goes back to bed. He was tired after four days on the farm, had a couple of beers in his system and had to be up again for work in about five hours' time. He puts a set of earplugs in and immediately falls asleep. It was a temporary slumber. Even with earplugs in, I was, I was woken up with the noise, the smashing, the, the banging. So, someone shouted, get, get the light on. And the, you know, when the guys uh, opened the door, you know, the light was on then, and then all I could see was floor to ceiling of thickest, blackest, acrid smoke. Um, and the light just bang. Just out, pitch black. In the time that the light was on, I think I'd grabbed my trousers on, I'd, I had a T-shirt, and I'd just dive to the floor. Put the T-shirt to my mouth and I, I started crawling. I knew in my head that I didn't know where anyone was, I didn't know what was going on, it was... But I knew I had to go out of that room and along the corridor to my right and left down the veranda, out to the veranda. I only knew that from, you know, hanging some socks out on the veranda to dry or something, and I I knew which way I had to go, and uh, I started crawling. Yeah, I knew people were in front of me and behind me, but walking over me, I guess, I don't know. I carried on. I thought I was going along this corridor, but I can't have gone far. And uh, I couldn't get anywhere. And I was breathing in the smoke. I was, and I could just see this slit under the door of light. And I knew that that was out through a room somewhere to a veranda. And I, I couldn't even lift my arm up to open the door. I started breathing through the gap underneath the door. On the other side of that door was Yoki Visa. At that moment, I could hear uh, screams and people in the hallway. So I opened up the door and all the smoke was coming in, like really thick and really dark, so you couldn't see nothing. I lie down on the ground and I just started screaming, follow my voice, come here, here's the door, follow my voice, come here. And I know that I heard something close, so I crawled up like halfway inside the hallway. Couldn't see nothing, was just dark and smoke, so eyes closed. And, um, and, sp- and trying to bang on this door and, and sort of shouting. And I, I felt my arm. Then I felt something and I grabbed it and I... be lifted up. Uh, pulled it inside and it was Neil. And uh, uh, Neil was, uh, was staying across my, uh, my room. I was going through a room towards the veranda and I, and I turned and it was, um, you know, Yogi had, had basically 
pulled me out. Uh, so I got him in, closed the door, and Neil was like, his, his face was totally black um, off the smoke. He'd, he'd heard me. Um, so I talked to him, you're okay? And he, he said he'd um, put his arm in and just fell. He said, no, I'm, I think I'm okay. I said, okay, let's go outside. He lifted me out of there. We went out on the, the veranda, and I talked to him for a while, and I said, okay. And I said to him, there's people in there. I know there's people in there. And he, he went to go back. Go to the others. And I said, you can't go back in there. You can't. There are more people. You, you won't get out. And uh, uh, he also went outside on the, the veranda. veranda onto the butcher's shop next door. And it was the butcher. And meanwhile, I saw there were more people gathering on the veranda. I just remember looking up and praying that no one was in there. But I knew they were. In room six, where Neil had been sleeping, were Sebastian Vesterveld and Adam Rowland, two of the 15 victims who died in the fire. It just went. The whole lot just went. Like, boom. The, the flames. And we, um, we just watched. We couldn't do anything. And, uh, you know, I, I remember climbing down a ladder from the roof then of the, the butchers um, onto the street. Um, and I, 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 I don't know what, we, what happened then. I, really, it was um, shock, I guess. Uh, I remember being in an ambulance. I remember being covered, you know, soot all over my face and wrapped up in a, a blanket. I think they, I think they gave me like a inhaler. And then I think we, we were just over by the by the hotel, just sat on the pavement, just in the hotel, just, just watching, just seeing what was happening. As he's watching the palace burn, he recalls that first bin he spotted just after midnight. I remember then knowing, knowing then that I'd seen something, you know, knowing that I'd witnessed something, that something something wasn't right. And I, I found a policeman and I... I said I've seen something, um, gave him my name, and he said he'd find me in it um, if they wanted to speak to me. <sighs> I uh, had to wait um, there, and and then I thought, I don't know how they... Someone must have come and found me and, and got me and took me to the police station because um, I gave the, the first statement, I think, was at five o'clock in the morning, you know, that, that morning, and I was in there for a good good few hours, um, giving a statement to them. He returns to the group and sets up in the cultural centre where he sends the email you heard at the top of this episode. Everyone was was there together, you know, grieving um, and brought together. And a lot of bonds were formed there because I'd I'd only been at Childers for four days. So we were supported by everybody. You just uh, ask for something like... uh, I think I remember saying I wanted to juggle and suddenly someone had brought me three juggling balls, you know. They kind of got us some vouchers for Big W and took us there on a coach and, you, you know, you, you went round and got a CD or a, a, a surf T-shirt or something, just, just, just some little bit of normality in the chaos. Things wouldn't exactly return to normal, though. 
Neil was brought back to Australia to testify when Long's murder charges finally went to trial in March 2002. You know, I knew that I'd seen somebody there. Obviously, I knew that he'd taken that bin out, but I remember doing the photo, um, the IDs, to see who, who I thought, you know, was in the hostel. It wasn't till, till I stepped in that courtroom and saw him in the glass box. I knew it was him. I knew it was him I'd seen that night. I'd, you know, I could see him back then. And it all came back to me. And I, I didn't have any qualms and saying, saying what I saw and what had happened. I spoke to people afterwards. Um, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. I think, I think most people were. It wasn't until you get back and you, and you stop and you process what had happened. And it took me a long time to, to settle again, to find work, to, you know, and I, I can remember going to the toilet in the night and seeing the orange glow from streetlights and shivers coming up my spine and fireworks have never been the same. Watching fireworks. The noise, you know, you, you don't forget that. To this day, he still can't thank Yoki enough for his actions that night. You know, Yogi saved my life, you know. <laughs> the guy's a bloody hero. But that in itself has brought about its challenges. But he knows he was one of the lucky ones on a night when it was most certainly needed. Why the, Why he... Why he fucking did it? Why? What, what made him? What was he thinking? You know? Um, I think I've suffered a lot with, with guilt without realising it, that I just didn't do something else on that night, that I didn't... I don't know. What? what? You can't change what you've done. Would he have done something to me? I don't know. But would it have saved people? Was the fire out? Was it? Did it re relight from there? But it wasn't. Funnily enough, it wasn't until I've listened to some of the podcasts that where the fire experts have explained what they believe to have happened in the. It was more fires had been lit, and. Um, you know, I think that's re- made me realise that he either came back in and relit them, or there were more fires there, and it wasn't, you know, a smouldering fire. It's difficult to process it all, even twenty years on. Neil stayed in Australia for a few more months after the Childers fire, snuck in some time in New Zealand before returning home to surprise his mum on Christmas Eve 2000. And there are some good memories as well of Australia. I loved Australia. And that bastard won't change that. Now, if you're wondering, Andy was safe in the fire. He is listed as a resident of Room 6, but he was sleeping in the van that night and then when he heard the fire, he actually tried to break through a padlocked back gate to check on his friends. Fortunately, he couldn't get in. 
Neil and Andy are still the best of mates after all these years. As for Carly the Wonder Van, well, Neil continued to love and adore her. He drove her pretty much the whole way around Australia before returning to Sydney, but that relationship ended abruptly when she was sold to a couple of Canadian backpackers for more than Neil had paid in the first place. Neil's been back to Childers a few times since. Now, remember he said he managed to put his trousers on when he woke up to the sound of the fire erupting. Well, in his pocket was his hostel key. He returned it on one of his visits, and it now sits on display at the memorial to the victims of the fire in Childers. I strongly encourage you to go and check it out if you can. It's run by the Bundaberg Regional Council, who have been amazing supporters of this podcast series. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran. All the editing, original composition and sound design was done by Zoltan Fecho. If you could continue to spread the word about the podcast by telling at least one family member or friend about it today, that would be much appreciated. Thank you to Neil Griffith for sharing his very personal story with me for this episode. It has been a very humbling experience to present it to you. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.